I am a lover of books. From my earliest ages, I remember perusing books even when I couldn't read them. And then soon as I've learned how to read, gobbling up, you've heard that expression before, everything that I could get my hands on. My parents could not buy books fast enough, and so I would read each book three to four times. Uh, reading was something that I so much enjoyed. Today, we're going to hear about John eating a book. Today, we're going to learn about John eating a book. Now, when someone eats a book, that means what that book is becomes part of them. So, if I were to rename my sermon, because that's what happened in my mind, I would call this the edible book. The edible book. We're looking at Revelation chapter 10. So this chapter, Revelation chapter 10, and part of Revelation 11 are actually an interlude in what we call the seven trumpets. The first six are listed out, then a little break is given, and then you get your seventh trumpet. Um, when we studied the seven seals last year, same concept, six seals, a break in between where we answered the question, who shall be able to stand? And that answer was found with 144,000, and then we went on to the next seal. Six, break, seven. Six, break, seven. And so we are in the, if you will, the break in between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. The trumpets, and I'm doing a little bit of review just because it's been a few months. I, I don't want to put you all in a tight spot and say, please tell me what the trumpets were about. Um, but the trumpets were about judgment, right? So we, we, we're going to look at that again a little bit later in, our, in our, our, our thoughts this morning. But they're about judgment. And so there is a, it's kind of a, a rough section, and it finishes up in chapter 9, verse 21. Here's the first few words of verse 21. And they did not repent. So they had all these judgments happen, and they still don't repent. And this section here, chapter 10, and the first part of chapter 11 is to answer, what does God do through his people and his word to bring conviction to an unrepenting people in a time of judgment? So I'll repeat that again because that was like a mouthful. This section is, what does God do through his people and his world, word to bring conviction to an unrepenting world living in the time of judgment? And the answer is a little book, an open book. John is watching. He's standing on earth. He sees an angel come down from heaven. The angel comes down from heaven. It's a very special angel. This angel has a rainbow, shines like light. There is clouds connected with it. This is a very special angel. When the angel lands on earth, the angel puts one foot on the earth and puts one foot on the sea. Then he takes his hand and lifts it up to heaven and swears by him who is the creator God. In his hand is an open book. 
John is watching all of this happen, and as he's watching it take place, he is told something very special. Go to the angel and ask for the book. So he goes to the angel, and he asks for the book, and the angel says, sure, here, have it. This is the Chuck paraphrase. And then he says this, eat it. Take the book and eat it. And that must have been clearly a symbol, right? Because um, as much as I say I like reading books, I have never put maple syrup on top of my books. So instead of eating it that way, he eats it. But however, there wasn't maple syrup, but what did it taste like? Some of you know this. It actually tasted sweet like honey. Very unique book. So he's tasting it. The, the taste of honey is in his mouth, and then he swallows it. As it goes down into his stomach, it tastes, well, no longer is taste. It, the, the feeling is bitter, really bitter. Um, and then the angel looks at him and says something. I want you to go and prophesy again to many people all over the planet. That's the vision. What does it mean? It's clearly written in symbols. We looked at this before. Revelation is taken all or in part. A lot of it is from the Old Testament. It is written in symbols, and it's, you and I can understand it by looking at the Old Testament. So, um, first of all, I like to look at the mighty angel, if you don't mind, and see some of the, the message that's for us today by looking at the mighty angel here in Revelation chapter 10. And I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. Now, it's interesting because John is now on earth for this vision. Chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, he was in heaven watching what was taking place. But now he's giving the perspective from earth. Here he is watching this angel come down, clothed with a cloud. Now, when you look and see the phrase clothed with a cloud, in the book of Revelation, you know who's almost always associated with when it comes to clowns? Jesus is. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus is coming with the clouds. Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, 15, and 16, each verse talks about Jesus coming with clouds. There's a connection of clouds with Jesus. But it goes on. It says, And a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. In the book of Revelation, as we've studied it so far, have we seen a rainbow already? We have. In Revelation chapter 4, we see a rainbow around the throne of God. In fact, um, what does a rainbow mean? You're Old Testament historians here, right? Help me out. It's a covenant. It's the promise, the covenant promise. Where do we first see a rainbow? After the flood, Genesis chapter 9. Let's turn there, Genesis chapter 9, and we are going to look at verse 12. Genesis 9 and verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So this rainbow, when you see it, not only is it around a throne in Revelation, 
it is also a sign of the covenant that God has with his people for perpetual generations. So angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. He has a rainbow around his head. The Bible also says that his face was like the sun. When we look at that, uh, can you think of any other place in Revelation where it talked about a face being like the sun? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16. In fact, if you don't mind turning there, it's just a few pages back. Revelation chapter 1, verse 16 says very simply, speaking of Jesus, the vision of Jesus in Revelation 1, it says he had on his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance or face was like the sun shining in its strength. Have you noticed the cloud was connected with Jesus? The rainbow is around the throne. The sun, a face like the sun, is connected with Jesus. What about the next one? Feet like pillars of brass. You're already in Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 15. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. Again, speaking of Jesus. So I hope you're kind of getting a feeling for the direction this passage is going in Revelation 10. This is Jesus' language. Clouds. Rainbow, yes? Face shining like the sun. Feet like brass. That's all being discussed here. And then it says this, and we cannot miss this. One foot is on the land, earth, and the other foot is where? Is on the sea. Three times it repeats it. Anytime the Bible repeats something, when you're studying the Bible, it's because God's trying to tell you something. It repeats it three times. Let's not miss what is foot on the earth, foot on the sea. Three times. So in the Old Testament, what does it mean to have your foot on something? Yes, it belongs to you. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 24 says, everywhere your foot treads shall belong to you. Another place in Joshua chapter 10, it says, you will take your feet, Joshua had them do this, take your feet and put it on the neck of the enemies you've just conquered. It's kind of a rough action we're seeing here. But it's saying, God is in, you are in charge of them. They're under your control. My feet show that I'm in possession of something and they show I'm in control of something. With that in mind, Jesus, this representation of Jesus, has his foot on the land and the sea. Everything is under his control. Hold on to it, because two weeks from now, three weeks from now, some weeks from now, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation chapter 13. In Revelation chapter 13, where does the first beast come from? The sea. Where does the second beast come from? The land. And I'm being told three chapters in advance, God's in charge. All of that's under his control. 
It's coming, but everything's under control. What a beautiful picture we're seeing as we get started here. All right. Um, continues on. Where are we at? Revelation chapter 10. It says, it says, and he cried, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars so many times in the Old Testament when you see Jesus talking in a setting of judgment, the concept is connected with a lion roaring. Let me just give a few of them. Um, we'll go to one, but I'll share several with you. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 10. So Hosea chapter 11 and verse 10. Uh, if you're looking for Hosea and you're trying to find it quickly, it's after the book of Daniel. And Daniel is after the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 10 says this. They shall walk after the Lord... He will roar like a lion when he roars, and his son shall come trembling from the west. Speaking of God, when he's speaking, by the way, the context here in Hosea is judgment, he's going to be roaring like a lion. Joel chapter 1 and verse 16, excuse me, 3 verse 16, and Amos 3 8, all of them talk about the same concept. God speaking is roaring like a lion. So with this picture, help me out. Coming with clouds, rainbow around the head, face shining like the sun, feet like brass, speaking like a lion, in possession of heaven and earth. Who is this angel? It appears to be Jesus Christ. Contextually speaking, that's what we see. Is Jesus seen as an angel in other places in the Bible? Yes, he is, without a question. In fact, we'll see him as an angel just in a few chapters, Revelation chapter 12. So there is clearly a connection that's being played out here. Um, what's about to happen is so important that Jesus himself comes. But when Jesus comes, here in Revelation chapter 10, we see all the pictures. What's in his hand? A book. What kind of book is in his hand? A closed book or an open book? Open book. So let's just take a little bit of time to look at that. For those of you who like, okay, I'm, not, I'm only going to do this once or twice. Please don't uh, tune out when I mention the word Greek. But in Greek, the word that's being used here in Revelation chapter 10 for little book is Biblar, Biblaridian, Biblaridian, excuse me, Biblaridian. It's only used here. There's Biblios and Biblion, and they're used in different places. But that word means a small papyrus scroll, something small. It's not talking about something big. And it's not the word that's used to describe the scroll in Jesus' hands in Revelation chapter 5. So it's a different thing. This little scroll that is here it says that it was open soon as you go through the effort here in revelation chapter 3 and it describes a little book open his hand in verse 2 excuse me revelation chapter 10 verse 2 he has a little book open his hand the very time that we go through the effort to say it's open is to imply that at one point it must have been closed at some point it was sealed we gonna let you know now that it's unsealed it's open in his hand um, so on a consistent basis, Revelation gets its symbols from where? 
Old Testament. So we're going to go and look at the Old Testament a little bit to help us uh, understand this. Do you know there is a sealed book described in the Old Testament? By fact, there's only one place you see a sealed book being described. It's in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. So please turn to Daniel chapter 12. And we're just going to play around a little bit what the Bible says here in Daniel 12. Verse 4. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. The Bible says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book forever. Is that what it says? I want to make sure. What's it say? Seal the book until when? The time of the end. And then it says this. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Just the point. If the book is sealed until the time of the end, that means at the time of the end it will be unsealed or open. Now, the phrase time of the end is going to come up a lot, so um, what does time of the end mean? I will just give a simple illustration, as I've heard some other evangelists give. Um, what's the difference between time of the end and end of time? What's the difference between time of the end and end of time? If you were meat eaters, some of you may be, and you were fattening up a turkey for Thanksgiving, if you got your turkey and put him in a cage in September and start giving him a very specialized diet, for the turkey, that's the time of the end. All right? It's not the end yet, but it's the time of the end. And then, two days before Thanksgiving, you go out with your axe. That is the end of time. Yes? So we have the time of the end and the end of time. What we're looking at here is the few months leading up to our Thanksgiving. Let me rephrase this. This is the few, uh, may even be decades or centuries, leading up to Jesus' second coming. This is the very final part of earth's history. It's the time of the end. Not the end of time yet, but the time of the end. Now, it goes on and describes this book will be sealed until the time of the end, which implies it will be open at that time. It says, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, oftentimes when I first read this, it was applied to the incredible technological advances that are taking place in our society today. I mean, in our last 130 years, you realize until 130 years ago, until mm, 200 years ago, just to really put it as far out as possible, for the first 5,000, 6,000 years of Earth's history, the fastest way you could travel was the fastest horse you could find. For 5,800 years, the fastest way you could travel was the fastest horse you could find. Now, wow, what is the speed of the, the, the International Space Station is going through space right now? We were discussing this at breakfast sometime. We have fun discussions at breakfast. The International Space Station is going at some 8,000 miles per second. Yeah, yeah, so that's a little bit faster than the fastest horse, right? 
Uh, this is mind-blowing. And oftentimes, when I looked at knowledge increasing and people run to and through, I was like, man, it has to be the technological advances, the, the, the economy, uh, some of the incredible things that are happening. However, contextually speaking, knowledge increasing is not talking about that. It's talking about a knowledge of the book of Daniel. That's what's being discussed, contextually speaking. So it's saying at the end of time, no, 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 no. I said that wrong, didn't I? The time of the end, knowledge is going to be increased in the understanding of the book of Daniel, which means it will now be open. It's sealed now, we don't understand, but it will be what? Opened. What a beautiful picture. So let us go. I'm wanting to make sure. <laughs> okay. So there is, this is from a book called Daniel Revelation. Maybe you've heard of it before. A writer named Uriah Smith. He was the first editor of a magazine called The Sabbath Review and Advent Herald. Anyhow, here's what he says. There is no book spoken of as closed and sealed except the book of Daniel's prophecy. And there is no account of opening of that book being unless it here in Revelation chapter 10. I find that interesting. But I'd like to step back into Daniel just a tad bit. Did you know there's actually a prophecy in Daniel that is sealed? There's a prophecy in the book of Daniel that's specifically sealed. Daniel chapter 8. And I will not spend time going through this prophecy even though my heart says, let's go through it. There's no way that you can handle that. Okay, and I recognize that, so we're not going to. But let's look at Daniel chapter 8 and verse 15. Daniel 8 verse 15, it says, Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meeting, and suddenly there, there came before me one having the appearance of a man. Verse 17, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to what? The time of the end. Oh, so the vision that you're talking about refers to the time of the end. And then he gives an explanation, the angel, of the first part of the vision. The ram is Medo-Persia. The goat is Grisha. The, the, the little horn is, is Rome and a connecting power. And then he says this in verse 26. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, this is the under 2,300 days or evenings and mornings, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. I told you it's true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Man, how do you like to get an interpretation like that? What I told you about the 2,300 days, it's true. Seal it up. It's not for now. You hear about it later. What a, what a picture. So here it is, Daniel 8. Here's a vision. It's for the time of the end. He says, seal it up. You'll find about it later. That's incredible. Now when I go to Daniel chapter 12 and it says, seal the book. It's for the time of the end. Oh, that's got to be somehow connected also with Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8's got to be at least part of that, what we're seeing here. All right, um, Revelation, we have come through, let's go back to Revelation chapter 10. We've cleared a, a, we clarified a few things. Uh, a little book that's now open in the hand of the angel. 
The only other place we see a book that is sealed, which then means it would later be opened, is the book of Daniel. Daniel seals it. We see that there's things referring to the end of time, or excuse me, the time of the end in Daniel. Okay, so here it is. Seven churches. Well, we've seen the spiritual history. I'm taking you into review. It'll be very quick. Seven churches, spiritual history of the church. Seven seals, spiritual warfare of the church. Seven trumpets, judgment on those who have oppressed God's people. And then in the midst of the seven trumpets, talking about judgment, we see a little book open that used to be closed. And what's in that little book deals specifically with judgment. Amazing. The connection here is fascinating to me. The only book in Bible prophecy that is mentioned as being sealed is the book of Daniel. Daniel says it's sealed till the time of the end. And one of the prophecies that's sealed to the time of the end specifically deals with judgment. Now, with that mindset understood, that means that the time period, which we see ending in the sixth trumpet, which we've looked at before, we are now coming to the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, as the time of the end. Because it's at this point we see an open book in the hand of Daniel. All right. When's the last time you were at a seminar and heard that long sermon on 2,300 days? Do you remember a sermon on 2,300 days? Any of you? And hopefully you got some of it. Uh, by God's grace, we'll look, <laughs> look at it again sometime this year in an exciting new way by God's grace, but looking at the old truth that's there, that understanding started opening up around 200 years ago, right on time. Before it, people didn't get it because the book was sealed. What you know, and can I, I can't speak for you, but what we know as Christians today, and often we... We, we are, uh, we is, I, you know there's a word that you want to say and you just can't think what that word was and it's completely not there. Let me try to say it in another way. Sometimes we have some great things in our grasp and we don't realize it. We have the explanations in an open book that people longed for for almost 2,000 years. And yet we have it today. They were excited to see it. We have something special. That's not what I meant to say, but I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. The next thing we see in Revelation chapter 10, and we're, the last part will go much faster in this first part, so please follow through. I will not spend this much time on the remainder. It says, and when he cried out, we just dealt with verse three, he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. 
So here is John, he's listening, and all of a sudden, seven thunders speak. Thunder is often connected with God speaking. But he hears these seven thunders speak, and he says, I get it. And he starts to write it down, and a voice says, no, John, don't do it. Don't write that down. Now, this is unusual. Because revelation, what does it mean? Reveal. And this is the one time in Revelation where it says, no, no, don't write it up, don't say it. You know what that means? Even, even in our book of revealing, there are some things that God just can't share with us yet. I find that important for us to realize that sometimes it's not for us to know everything. There are some times when we just don't need to know everything. The same writer of Revelation wrote the book or the Gospel of John. And at the end of the Gospel of John is one of my favorite verses. It's not, I have a lot of favorite verses. But he says this. If I were to write down all the things that took place in the life of Jesus, the world wouldn't have enough room for it. An almost similar concept here. You can't take what I have to say right now. Seal it up. And so it is sealed up. I believe that you and I, when we get to heaven, we're going to find out that there are some things we had no idea about. We are going to be shocked at the amount of knowledge that takes place in heaven. God has given us what's necessary for our salvation now. But the amount of knowledge when we get to heaven will be mind-blowing. So as we continue... um, It says, the angel which I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven, and he sware by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be, New King James Version says, delay no longer. King James Version says, time no longer. And the only reason I'm emphasizing that is this. The word, this is the only second time we'll talk about Greek. The word here for delay is chronos. Chronos throughout the entire Bible, in Greek Bible, is always translated time. Always translated time. The only time the translators of the Bible, of the English Bible, chose to use the word time was here. However, I believe what the early English translations did with time is most accurate because it connects best with Daniel chapter 12. And time fits beautifully. Let me just look at this very briefly. Um, What is time? Time no longer? Does that mean there's going to be no more watch? I wish. I met a man on the ferry last week. I was going across to Nantucket, and he's retired from the U.S. military, and we were having a conversation together, and he goes, I am so glad I'm retired. I said, why? He goes, he pointed to his wrist, and there was no watch on. He goes, I don't have a watch anymore. I can just do things when I want to, how I want to, no stress. Is that what the angel's talking about here? No more time? can't be. Not time as you and I compute it because just a few verses later, it talks about the days of the sound of the seventh angel, and that's time. So time is still continuing. Is it talking about probationary time? Well, no, because we still see some things taking place later on in chapter 11 that shows probation hasn't closed yet. What could be talked about here? 
what most likely fits, and as I see it, it would be prophetic time. What does that mean? That no prophecies with time in them are going to be in the future? No. But no prophetic period should extend beyond the time that that angel speaking, which is in the mid-1800s. Why do I bring this up? Today we live in an age of date setting for the second coming of Jesus. I remember doing evangelistic series in Connecticut in 20, oh boy, a few years back, 2011. And there was posters everywhere. Jesus is coming in May. Remember, you remember, might remember that. Jesus is coming in May. One of famous radio talk show hosts was promoting this. But if he had looked at this and understood that there is no more prophetic time period extending past what's taking place there in the center of the 1800s, that message on judgment, he would have saved himself a lot of hassle. You know, there's even Adventists sometimes that I hear say, you know what? This is going to take place. This is going to take place. And I expect we should see Jesus in just about uh, 2014. Uh, no, excuse me. Tw- that's probably what happened too. But um, 2024, 2025. Anytime I hear that, I instantly say that's not true. And I get people who are mad at me. You don't understand. It fits perfectly. Mm-hmm. I can make anything fit. But the bottom line is there is no more prophetic time period extending past this. And who says this in Revelation 10? Jesus does. And how does he just say it? Oh, let me just tell you, there's no more time period. No, it says he puts his hand up to heaven and he swears by the creator, God. He's emphasizing it. I'm not playing around with you. This is not a a, a guesstimate. I'm telling you, there will be no more time. Time no longer. No more prophetic time will be taking place. What what a, a strong way to emphasize that. Then we get to that part that we talked about earlier. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, this is verse 8, spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Um, I do not like bitter things. I've met some people who feel that the more bitter it is, the healthier it is for you. In fact, I was told that. I was visiting some friends of mine, and I don't know if they're watching right now, but in the land of Greece. And uh, they have this thing called bitter root. And I don't think I've ever had something more bitter than bitter root. It's a great name. And uh, they share with me that it is healthy. Bitter things are more healthy for you. And so I've decided not to be as healthy. <laughs> um, but no, uh, it is, it's amazing, um, that, that, that taste of bitterness. You want to just get it out of you, and you can't. Uh, but the taste of honey is good. I just recently um, found something that was nice for me. Um, if any of you have struggled with mouth sores, uh, I have. And, man, trying to clear them. I've tried every medication that can get from a dental hygienist or a dentist. How do you deal with it? And everything that's supposed to work and stop it still takes days upon days upon days. And I think it might have cured itself anyhow by that time. And so someone recently told me, use honey. And I said, man, that can't hurt. 
Because even if it doesn't work, I get good honey three times a day. And so I did it. And I can tell you the flavor of honey in your mouth is fantastic. My kids were looking at me like they want it. I said, no, no, this is medication. <laughs> this is not for everybody. It's only for people being healed. Uh, side note, uh, they cleared up within two days. But anyhow, that's, I'm not here to promote that. I'm here to discuss about honey taste versus bitterness. You know, this is uh, a quotation from the book Revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, some of you are familiar with the book by Ronko Stefanovich. And he says this. The gospel is always good news about the God who loves, cares, and is in control. It often becomes bitter for God's messenger, however, who may experience disappointment in some way in proclaiming the message. I find that interesting. You mean something that's sweet can actually be bitter to the person who is sharing it? I've had that happen. Uh, maybe some of you have too. This idea of eating books is not new. It's not, not new in Revelation. Again, where am I going to go? Old Testament. I can see quite a few places. Jeremiah talks about it. And Ezekiel. If you don't mind, I'd like to go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 2. Jeremiah has it also in Jeremiah 15. But for the sake of time, we'll just go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 2. And we'll start with verse 9. Ezekiel chapter 2 and verse 9. It says, Now when I looked, this is Ezekiel speaking, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me. And there was writing on the inside, on the outside, and written on it were the lamentations of mourning and woe. So would you say this is an open scroll or a closed scroll? So it's an open scroll. And then it says this, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, and then go speak to the house of Israel. So notice what happens. You eat the scroll, and then you go speak. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly, and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and in my mouth, it was in my mouth, like what? Honey for sweetness. So here we have this, this idea of eating a scroll with a sweet taste in your mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. And then you read what takes place next. Um, it's not pleasant. The house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. That's verse 7. Uh, Verse 9, like an adamant stone, like harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. And he goes on and describes, here is Ezekiel eating a scroll, it tastes like honey. That's not a bad experience. But then when he goes and shares what he has eaten, the response is negative and anger. John is experiencing the same exact thing in Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, I'd like to just point out something, uh, and I, you cannot fully share a message from God if you have not fully assimilated it and it's become part of you. Just like food being eaten, it is only then that the message you share has conviction. So um, if you go out and say, hey, let me tell you about my Jesus, and you haven't met your Jesus, 
can't share. If you really want to share about God and the great things he's done in your life, you have to know that he did great things in your life. Eat it. Spend time with God. Spend time with his word. And when that happens, your sharing will then be successful. There's not success if you're not spending time sharing, spending time with him. You know, the experience that John had of sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach was a symbol of those who were going to have this message of the open book. So the open book is what book? The open book was the book of what book of the Bible? Daniel, yes. This open book, Daniel, had been sealed from the time of Daniel, is now open. When people started understanding Daniel and the prophecies that had been sealed, you know what they felt like? Fantastic. They had joy. I wish I had time to put some quotes up and share with you. Things like, this was the best in our entire experience. We were never happier or more joyful than at this time. They were learning that Jesus, they thought Jesus was going to be coming soon because they read about the judgment, and they thought that judgment meant second coming. They thought, okay, cleansing of a sanctuary is a second coming. So they were all excited. Jesus is coming back, and he loves us, and they were sharing it with as many as they could. But something did happen. They were disappointed. And what started out as sweetness became bitterness in them. And this is the group of people who shared the message of Revelation chapter 10, living at the time of Revelation chapter 10. Coincidence? I don't think so. Revelation chapter 10 tells the beginnings of the experience of God's people in the end of time, excuse me, in the time of the end, and when they start understanding the book of Daniel, I have found, for me, that sometimes the sweet things can become bitter. God can say, here's something special for you, and I can eat it up, and when I share with others, it may be rejected, or I may go through a difficult time of some kind. Do you think Satan likes us when we have great experiences with God? Absolutely not. Does he try to make our lives bitter? There's no question. But a message is given in verse 11 as we close. Then he said to me, by the way, I should say it with this, with my sweet mouth and bitter stomach, God said this to me. You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Why prophesy again? Because the book is now open. There's more to be shared. What you shared before was fine, but now the book is open. There's more to be shared. It's not sealed anymore. New information is there for you to share with someone else. Prophesy again. Yes, you had a sweet experience. Then you had bitterness follow it. That's okay. Prophesy again. In Revelation 10, God knew about a group of people who would have a sweet in a mouth, bitter stomach experience. It would come from having an open book. He knew that they were going to study his word. 
They're going to give their very best as they study the word and they're going to have a sweet in the mouth experience, bitter stomach. He knew that. How big was that group of people? Well, there's about 50,000 who, who had the sweet in the mouth experience. They were so excited, but when it became bitter, it narrowed down to 50 people. Five zero. By the way, this didn't just take place in New England, although New England was a center place. Did you know it took place in Africa? It took place in the Middle East. It took place in Asia. It took place in Europe, especially in England. All around the world, there was a sweet in the mouth, bitterness stomach experience. Revelation 10 foretold it. And when they saw it, they took hope. You are part of a group of people. Your heritage, your spiritual heritage, is a group of people who had a sweet in the mouth, bitterness stomach experience and have been given a call to once again prophesy. So God has called us to. But there's something else that I want to encourage you with. God knows your experience. He does. Can you imagine that God would write a whole chapter in this book 2,000 years in advance for 50 people? He did. If you have been through bitterness, I'd like to let you know that God knows. Maybe you've had your high experiences. We've been talking about this a little bit in Prophets and Kings for our, our prayer meeting. You've had your high mountaintop experiences where you're spiritually on fire and nothing can touch you. But maybe you've hit some bitterness as a result or afterwards, just like Elijah did, just like the people in Revelation chapter 10 did. They felt hopeless. They felt like the world had been pulled out from underneath their feet. They felt like everything they knew was not anything anymore. And I want to let you know that if you feel that way, God understands. Your bitterness that's in your stomach, he knows. Don't forget the sweetness in your mouth. And remember that he's asked you to say, you know what? I'm going to go forward again. Even though I may not fully get the bitterness right now, I'm going forward again by God's grace. Do you want to do that? I do. I want to be a connection, a continuation by the grace of God of Revelation chapter 10. God has called us to prophesy again. He knows your bitterness. He also has given you sweetness. Will you move forward with him? That is my desire. I'd like to pray as we finish out this message and then we'll have our closing song. Father in heaven, we thank you for the sweet experience you give us. And Father, when we go through bitterness, let us not forget the sweetness and definitely let us not forget that you know you're intimately equated with our experience and that you love us. Give us courage, Father, to prophesy again, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.